Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I just wanted to take a minute to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And as we approach 2018, I believe it's important to spend some time to reflect on all that God has done in our lives for 2017 and respond in thankfulness. Today's study will help deal with some of the influences that we might have picked up in the previous year and even spend some time talking about some of those things we might need to leave behind. So turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12 through 12, because this message is entitled, Love in Advent. Well, do you have any plans for Christmas? If so, um, are you going somewhere or are you staying home? And if you're going somewhere, what do you plan on taking with you? You know, most of the time when we go on trips, we focus on taking the essentials. But sometimes we choose to pack things to take with us that we probably shouldn't. And sometimes sometimes those things are pretty obvious, um, at least to some. Like, for example, what are you going to do with a hairdryer on a camping trip? Where do you plan on plugging that in at? But some things we pack, they have kind of like this subtle ridiculousness to us. Like, they seem like they're important to take along with us, but they really aren't. Last week, we packed for a trip for North Texas um, so we could go to a friend's wedding and have Christmas a little early at my sister's house. And in my grand wisdom, I managed to pack several board games that we didn't even play. But I somehow managed to forget my toothbrush, one of the most essential necessities ever. <laughs> in today's text, we're going to see the Apostle John. He, he's going to write a letter to second and third generation Christians. And scholars believe that when John wrote these letters, most, if not all, first generation Christians had passed away making what one of the last eyewitnesses had to say extremely important. It's also believed that John wasn't specifically writing to any church in particular, but that he fully intended for this letter to be circulated around the established churches. So when John wrote this letter, it was because he understood that the church all across Asia Minor was full of conflict because it now it had people from just about every kind of culture. And the more and more people who were coming to the knowledge of God, the more and more baggage and potential conflict got added to the church. See, people brought things with them to church that they probably shouldn't have. Um, And I don't mean they brought it on a Sunday morning. I mean they brought it to the body of believers, and it was there. And, um, you you know, the the idea is, is like the larger the church gets, the more problems you have. And I think it's different. I think it's the larger church has the same problems, just on a larger scale. Um, You know, sometimes we pack things and we carry around unnecessary baggage. And the early church had adopted several false doctrines that they had needed to abandon, and it had everything to do with where they came from. For example, when the Greeks were saved, they brought serious doubt that Jesus was human as well as God. And um, Christians with a Greek background had difficulty accepting that Jesus was fully man and fully divine because in their culture, they were taught that the body was a prison that your spirit desperately wanted to escape from. And this later led to a heretical teaching called Gnosticism, which means knowledge. People who claimed to have special knowledge about God were the only ones who really knew God. And um, this heretical teaching considered all of physical matter to be evil. You see, they believed not in one God, but two. They believed that there was an evil lower God, the God of the Old Testament, who created the world and everything in it, a God who was fundamentally evil, jealous, rigid, lacking in compassion, and prone to genocide. And then there was the higher God, the God of the New Testament, who was completely cut off from creation, and he showed no real interest in human affairs, 
but desired their love and worship. And so that's who they worshipped. Now remember, they believed that the body was evil, a teacher teaching which later um, led to punishing one's own flesh and even putting one's own head in, in a lion's mouth so that one could die as a martyr. Um, but if the body was so evil, they had this question, how could Jesus, the manifestation of God in, or on earth, be flesh? They really struggled with this idea that Jesus was really um a man and you know i think it just kind of flipped since you know since then we uh we really question whether god jesus was really god everybody believes he was just a man but for them it was just the opposite they they had this difficulty accepting that jesus came in the flesh and uh, you probably see where i'm going with this john the last living disciple of jesus a man who had touched Jesus with his own hands, witnessed his miracles, and saw him crucified, buried, and resurrected with his own eyes, a man who had put his finger in the risen Lord's wounds, wrote this letter to them. And when John writes to them, he doesn't take the approach that one would think would be a good starting point to maybe address some of these concerns that they had. And I think that's because John had begun to master what he was about to instruct the church on. You see, many times when we want to correct others, we do it without considering where they had come from and without considering what they've experienced. And much of the time, our experiences lead us to the belief, uh, you know, that, that what we're experiencing is true. And because of those experiences, we carry around unnecessary baggage, things that aren't necessarily true, especially about God. For example, do you know why I took plenty of board games and forgot my toothbrush? It's because one time we went and I didn't have anything to do, and I was just making sure that that didn't happen to us all over again. The, uh, the Apostle John, he didn't attack these believers even though they had the wrong doctrine. He addressed their baggage. No matter what home you come from, there will always be baggage. The famous atheist and neurologist Sigmund Freud believed that the experience was, uh, our experiences was, was the greatest teacher. For example, he said in his book, The Future of Illusion, in the long run, nothing can withstand reason and experience, and the contradiction that religion offers to both is palpable. Now, according to Freud, the person with the most experience should have the most knowledge. Well, he was certainly right about one thing, and that is that much of the time, our experience and religion, they do contradict. And so the question is, what are we going to do? What are we going to go with? Are we going to go with our experiences, what Freud says is the greatest teacher in the world, or the Word of God, which says it is the greatest teacher? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Well, what in the world would the Word of God need to rebuke and correct in us if we've learned all that we need to know from our experiences? Well, it's funny you should ask, because it turns out sometimes we learn things from our experiences that aren't true. For example, consider the woman who, as a young girl, was abused by her stepdad. What has experience taught her? Experience has taught her that she cannot trust men, and in order to not get hurt, she must never allow herself to be in a situation where she's not fully in control. She might have also learned not to trust authority figures and that God must not exist because he stood aside and allowed horrible things to happen to her. Is this true? Well, according to God's word, it isn't. Does she have good reason to believe it's true? Sure, experience has taught her these lessons. 
Yet God's Word tells us something different. God's Word tells us that we can move past our experiences, and when people have sinned against us, we must learn to forgive them, not for them, but for us. God's Word teaches us that He will use all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So you don't have to be abused as a child to bring in presumptions with Scripture. We all have presuppositions. We, we, we have things that we believe about God, Jesus, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and the church because of our upbringing that aren't necessarily true. And you will spend the rest of your life allowing Scripture to correct these things in you. You don't have it all figured out. Scripture exists to show us our unnecessary baggage. What's important to understand about our unnecessary baggage is that until we're willing to set it down, we really can't carry anything else. We are limited on how much we can actually carry. So just for example, consider the young man who was told his whole life that he was worthless. This young man was told so many times, he believes it. Now imagine he hears the message from God, I love you. I died for you. You're priceless. How much of that message is he going to be able to absorb when he's still carrying around the baggage from his past? Again, each of us has unnecessary baggage, things from our past experiences that clash with the Word of God. And sometimes these things can be beliefs about God himself. This is certainly true for the Greek Christians who believed in Gnosticism. Yet John doesn't rip their theology to shreds by telling them how foolish or ignorant they are. He begins like this. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who has love has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. What is John doing? Aren't you going to correct him, John? Well, John knew that in order to get these people to set down their presuppositions, he had to show them what they should possess as believers in God. And we can only discover what we don't need by focusing on that which we do. He says in verse 8, if you're not loving, you're not of God. So essentially, John is telling his believers everywhere to throw open their suitcase and make sure that they have plenty of love. Because if they don't have love in their suitcase, they don't even know God. John is getting back to the bare necessities, and love is the most important necessity of all. See, sometimes we pack things, we pack the right things, just not enough of them. Now, how many times have you gotten somewhere on vacation and you realize that, yes, you packed underwear, you just didn't seem to pack enough? And when this happens, you have to do the inside-out, frontward-backward scenario until you get through your vacation. But John says, if you know God, you know love. And the church knew God, so they knew love. They had love. They just didn't pack enough. How can we know? Because it hadn't really affected the way that they interacted with each other. Maybe it affected the way that they, they, got, they saw themselves or that God saw them, but it didn't affect the way that they interacted with each other. We see in Acts 6 that the Grecian Jews were fighting among the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Why do you think they were being overlooked? Could it be because the Grecian Jews had beliefs and presuppositions that the Hebraic Jews didn't like and decided that they aren't like us and don't believe the way that we do, so we're not going to serve them? John asked these churches, Where's your love? Sure, you packed all kinds of doctrine, but where is your love? 
Consider this. Would, would John look at our church today and say the same thing? How can we know for sure? How can we be certain that we have love? This is what he says in verse 9 and 10. He says, This is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How can we know? Well, love is displayed through sacrifice. Every time the Bible makes mention of God putting his love on display, sacrifice is always involved. For example, Ephesians 5, 1-2, Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 15.13 Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, he gave. Love is sacrificial. God shows his love for us through the sacrifice of his son. Remember, this was a letter from the man who watched this happen with his own eyes. Now, I personally believe that no one is, was as close to Jesus as, as he was walking on earth as John. John saw the sacrifice firsthand, a sacrifice that Jesus willingly made for him and for us. So he writes the churches of Asia Minor, and he reminds them that God gave them this love and that to divide the church over squabbles and disagreements, it undermined the love God showed for them. He showed them that because God sacrificed for us, it enables us to sacrifice for each other. And one of the things that has never ceased to amaze me is the way that our church loves the youth. When you think about it, youth can't really offer very much. Which is why a couple people I've run into in different churches, they didn't even want a youth program. You see, they believe that youth were a drain on the finances, which is certainly true. They are. Children don't tithe. Children break stuff. Children are always hungry. Children require adult supervision. And never once have I ever heard any of you at Rungi First Baptist complain about children. Never once have I heard you say, you know, we get those kids out of here. No, you've sacrificed your time and finances to ensure that these students were received by the church and led towards the Lord. For the last 10 years that I've been here, this church has always blessed the youth program with enough finances to ensure that any one of, him, any one of them who wanted to get closer to God at camp had the opportunity to do so. And the way you love these youth has been absolutely incredible. The way you've loved your pastor has been absolutely incredible. You sacrificed for your pastor in ways he will never be able to sacrifice back for you. And when we get to heaven, I believe that God will call forward Rungi First Baptist Church and that he will tell other churches, if you want to know how to love your pastor, this congregation did it exceptionally. And so I can't honestly tell you in good conscience that you don't know how to love. Because you have love. You have God. You have love for these youth. You have love for each other. And you have love for me. 
But I want to ask, though, do you pack enough love for those who are unloving? Do you possess the love required to respond to hatred with love? I don't have to tell you our culture doesn't speak very highly of Christians. I think this is mostly because Christians are disgusted with the lifestyles of unbelievers and and because of that, that we've been very unloving to a world that was already unloving. However, when this happens, we need to take our cues from John. He didn't attack the people who disgusted him. He shared the gospel. 1 John 4, 11 and 12 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. See, sometimes we pack the right things in the wrong way. Once on a trip to Colorado, I uh, I packed a bottle of shampoo in my overnight kit. However, I didn't listen to the, uh, the airline instructions and put it inside a Ziploc bag before packing it. You can probably guess what happened by the time we got there. With all the jarring and throwing of my luggage on and off the conveyor belts at the airport, my shampoo went all over my stuff. See, sometimes we bring the right things along with us. We just bring it in the wrong way. John knew how important doctrine is. He knew how important it was to believe that God, that Jesus, was fully God and fully man. He knew that unless someone was able to understand that God is not far off, that they would never understand the importance of God dying for us. And without that, no one could truly experience the power of the gospel. He knew the purpose of sound doctrine. The purpose of sound doctrine isn't to lead us to greater knowledge of the mysteries of the universe. The purpose of sound doctrine is to bring us to a greater knowledge and understanding of God. So if God is love... The purpose of sound doctrine is to bring us to a greater knowledge and understanding of love. Doctrine is certainly important, but we must look at it through the lens of love. In other words, we can't withhold love from others because they don't believe everything that we do. Remember, our beliefs are shaped by our experiences. If we believe something contrary to our experience... It's because God has revealed it to us through His Word. So turning someone away because they aren't like us and don't believe the way that we do can be a very destructive thing, and it can be very unloving. Unless, of course, you're talking about exercising church discipline. In other words, if someone's beliefs are so far off that it's dividing and confusing the congregation, that you have to ask them to leave, that is loving. You might be thinking, well, how can it be loving to ask someone to leave? Well, the Apostle Paul once talked about a church with a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, and he tells them, expel the unbeliever from among you. You see, discipline isn't for the purpose of punishment. It's for the purpose of love. Jesus says, those whom I love, I discipline. The idea behind church discipline is that a person who would be in such pain from the separation of the congregation would turn over their sin to God. And you may ask, where's the sacrifice there? To which I would ask, do you have any idea what it's like having to close the door on a family member who is caught in some form of sinful addiction? 
Do you understand what kind of agony and embarrassment and anger and frustration and heartache that brings upon the family member who has to lay out the boundaries and practice discipline with them? Have you ever been accused of turning your back on a family member because of their sin? You see, it's a sacrifice because the family has to be willing to endure the pain of separation and the accusation from others and maybe even their own family member so that they can find help that they need. That is love. We have to make certain that the doctrine that we fight for is a hill worth dying on. How can we know for certain that a hill is worth dying on? Well, if our doctrine doesn't point us to love, it's the wrong doctrine. If we use our doctrine as a weapon to hurt others, it's not the doctrine of God. We, if we have God, we, we will have love. And we have to lean into that love. And when we do, I believe that God will show us the areas of our life that are unloving. And I'll never forget thinking to myself one day, man, I really don't have any major sin in my life. I guess there's not much more for God to work on. <laughs> Except for my pride. Shortly after, I picked up a book called Boundaries, and God used it to flay me wide open. And God began to show me how much baggage I had carried into my home from my upbringing. How many beliefs I had in Him that simply weren't true. For example, um, we were walking through our Sunday school book called Boundaries with Kids as we were driving home one night. And and, um, I was reading through the material and I came upon a sentence that shook me to the core. The sentence says, Some parents are detached from their children and think everything is normal. And when I read that, it's like I I ran into a brick wall at that period, and I couldn't keep going. I tried to, and it just didn't work. And I had to reread that that sentence over and over and over again. And God used that sentence to show me that I was the person who was detached from his children. Through some weeping and reflection on the way home, Aaron and I were able to work through the reason why. You see, experience had taught me something that was just untrue. We had a miscarriage with our first child, and because of it, I was detached from Christian and Pete. I wouldn't allow them to get close to my heart because I was afraid God might take them from me, and I know that's just more than I can bear. See, I was withholding love from them because I was trying to keep a safe distance. In order to love... We can't keep a safe distance from others because God doesn't give us that example. He didn't remain safe on his throne while we suffered and were damned to eternity. No, he got off of his throne and he took all punishment upon himself so we didn't have to endure it. He sacrificed for us so that we could sacrifice for others. And when we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So allow yourself to do the same reflection here. If you're going somewhere for Christmas, what are you taking with you? Do we really want the love of God? Or do we want to continue to carry around unnecessary baggage? If we're going to sacrifice something, I say we start there with that unnecessary baggage. I want to read a passage of scripture for you. This is how I want to close this morning. 
1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Actually, I'm going to start with the last verse in verse 12. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body over to the flames, to die as a martyr, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.